Welcome everyone to a special Swapcast edition of the Liberty Advisor Show. I'm Tim Pichot, the Liberty Advisor, and we also have Kirk Chisholm, the host of the Money Tree Podcast. For our Money Tree listeners, you're used to Kirk asking the question, but today the tables have turned and I get to put Kirk in the hot seat and talk about a subject that is on a lot of people's mind, and that is the inflation-deflation debate. Now, I see Kirk has the Federal Reserve behind him, which is fitting because I'm actually about to head to the scene of the crime, Jekyll Island, Georgia, which is uh, actually where uh, J.P. Morgan's private estate was off the coast of Georgia, where the plan for the Federal Reserve was hatched. And I highly recommend people check out uh, the book Creature from Jekyll Island to know more on that. But anyways, uh, you know, Kirk, you know, right now, you know, you get asked a lot about, uh, you know, with all the Fed's money printing that's going on to try to keep the economy afloat. Just what are some of your thoughts about inflation right now? Because we've got a lot of people right now who are saying that, you know, because of the uh, all the money printing that is going on, that it's definitely going to in the short run cause massive amounts of inflation. And what would you have to say to, uh, to all of our listeners on the subject of inflation right now? Yeah, and this is a question I get a lot and, uh, and I appreciate you asking me, Tim. And one of the reasons we, why we wanted to have this, um, this interview is to really talk it through. Because I think there's a lot of misinformation out here. And, you know, I, I wanted, to, wanted to have the backdrop be the Federal Reserve because I think it's ironic we're talking about, you know, inflation and people don't really understand what inflation is. So I want to take a big step back and kind of talk about what inflation is. You know, inflation, basically it's a change, inflation or deflation, it's a change in prices. So a lot of people think, well, you know, there's 3% inflation a year and that's normal. Well, it's not really normal. It has been normal for the last 70 years, but prior to that, it wasn't. There were periods where there was inflation, there were periods where there was deflation. Um, if I remember correctly, I think the last time there was uh, any deflation was outside of 2008 was somewhere like 1955. So it's being well managed. Um, and, you know, that's the Federal Reserve's job as they as they claim to, you know, price stability. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, I have a background in economics. And so in my all my studies, every single professor I ever talked to said, oh, inflation's good, and we need to have, you know, normal inflation. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I don't want to get too much in the weeds, because I don't want to turn this into an economics class. Um, what, what's really important is, is kind of the, the lens you should look at inflation. Most people look at inflation as they don't want to sit, they don't want their money to sit in cash because cash is going to erode in value over time. So you need to invest it. That is the story that's beaten into every single person's head that's ever invested in the market. It comes from the gurus. It comes from the textbooks. Everybody has the same sentiment. Can't keep cash because it's going to lose value over time. Historically, that's been true. Historically, cash has lost value over time. Um, and the reason is if inflation is, let's say, 3%, um, and you have $100, next year, you're gonna, your $100 is going to be worth $97. I'm simplifying a lot. But that, that's basically what inflation means. That's why people feel like they don't want to have their money in cash, uh, because it's going to lose value over time. Now, it doesn't actually happen that way. You don't actually end up with less money. What ends up happening is that the goods and services you buy cost more. So if you spend $100 on your cable bill, next year it would be 103 something along those lines. That's, that's really the, how inflation works. Now, what I think is not talked about, and this is really the important part, is that inflation is not a constant. 
we think of it that way because it's talked about that way, but it's not a constant. It fluctuates. It goes up and down. There are millions and millions of buyers and sellers in the market, and they all make up a total aggregate of inflation. And it's not uniform. So think of it this way. If you own a chocolate bar, that chocolate has gone up pretty much at the rate of inflation for decades. It's just, that is actually one of the better markers of inflation because chocolate has pretty much kept pace with inflation. Real estate is another one. Generally speaking, it has kept pace with inflation. If you remove the period from pretty much 2000 to 2015, or up to today, it, historically hundreds of years, it is it has kept up with inflation. So there are some pretty standard fares, measures of inflation where things will keep track of what inflation is. But no one talks about deflation. You know why? Because it's bad. It it's It's bad in the eyes of the people who talk about inflation. It's not actually bad, but it's bad in the context of today. Um, We've had inflation for the past, let's say, 70 years consistently with really no serious bouts of, of deflation except for 2008 and actually right now. But um, generally speaking, there hasn't been. And what happens is you have this, this energy. Um, the best way I can describe it, there was a good article put out in, um, uh, I want to say it was maybe five years ago um, by uh, Nassim Taleb. And it was called a black swan in Cairo. And it was in, I think it was the uh, International Affairs magazine. But really what it talked about when I was reading it, here's a guy who, who really focuses on tail risks. And tail risks are um, the big black swan events like 2008 uh, or COVID. Those would be black swan events. They're huge events that people aren't really predicting, but they do happen. Um, and what he talked about in the article was basically that there, there's this distribution curve of, of uh, volatility. And I'm, I'm trying to not get too into the weeds, but the distribution of volatility is most volatility is maybe like hypothetically plus or minus half a percent a day on an index, right? Like let's just say that is the most common um, um, volatility during a day. Now there might be days where it's up or down 10%, but they may happen like once every 10 years. So there's a very low probability on a distribution curve that that's actually going to happen. Now, what Nassim talks about in his article is really what the Fed is trying to do is they're trying to push down the distribution curve. So if you think of it as like this curve, what the Fed is trying to do is take their finger and push it down and flatten it. So it's a more normal distribution curve. That's effectively what is happening. But instead of it being more normal, because, you know, the area beneath the distribution curve doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere. What'll happen is a normal distribution curve looks like this. The new one, when you push it down so it's more flat, is you get these big tail risks. So it look like more of like a W. And that's a real problem. And anybody who's been paying attention for the last 20 years will notice that we've had more and more of these events as time has gone on. And they they seem to be happening quicker and quicker. I mean, 2008 happened. That was really bad. You had about a year to prepare for that. Um, then we had, I mean, look at the, the crisis we had this year. That happened in a few weeks. You know, you had 2015. That, that took a, I forget, it was about a month and a half. If you looked at 2000 and, um, 
Whereas if you look at 2019, uh, I'm sorry, 18, sorry, 18 to 19, um, it took from, it took three months. So if you kind of look at, at these events, they're happening quicker and quicker. Instead of nine months, it's three months. Instead of three months, it's happening in three weeks. So the problem is, is all of this volatility picks up. And I know we're talking about inflation, but I think it's really important to understand that a lot of us have assumptions. Our assumptions in many ways are that inflation is a constant. And it's constantly going to be two or three percent, or whatever the Fed's telling everybody these days. They're, they're thinking that that's normal, and there really is no normal. There's only what the Fed is trying to do. They're trying to create stability in interest rates. They're trying to create stability in the economy. Um, you know, love them or hate them. Some people don't like the Fed. I know Tim's not a big fan. Um, the reality is, we're in a situation where um, we have to take the cards we're dealt. We can't just redesign a system today because we're already there. And the mistakes that have been made have been made, in my opinion, and you can't go back in time. So the question is, what do you do now? And so I look at inflation and inflation tends to, um, tends to be uniform, right? It tends to be, if you think about like the 80s and 90s, we had a, you know, we had inflation, it fluctuated a little bit, but basically after the big, you know, um, Volcker incident where he, he really killed inflation, you know, once you kind of got to a point of normalcy, inflation was, you know, there are some expectations, it was within a range. Um, now inflation keeps going down and down and down. And, you know, inflation is not necessarily a constant. When inflation happens, things tend to be more consistent. When you have deflation, there's a lot less consistency. So if you think about a time where there was inflation, let's say like, um, you know, like the 90s, it was more consistent. Like there was not a lot of deflation going on. It was mostly inflation. Um, everything was going up in price. It didn't matter what it was. It was everything was going up at, a, you know, at different rates, but more or less everything was going up. In deflationary times, that's not how it works. In, def in deflationary times, it tends to be less uniform. It tends to be all over the place. And I'll give you an example. So if you think about um, inflation, well, what is inflation? Well, the price of goods and services have rised, right? That's, that's really the, the effect of inflation. Um, so yeah, some goods and services have gone up. If you look at healthcare and education, they've gone up a lot, right? And you think, oh, there's huge inflation out there. No, healthcare and education prices have gone up a lot. That is, does not mean it's across the board. Not everybody is paying for college. Sure, everybody's paying for healthcare at one form or another, but the insurance is compensating it too. So let's not go down that rabbit hole. The point is, is that is going through high inflation. Now look at other things. Look at commodity prices. Commodity prices have not been experiencing high inflation. If anything, they've been going down in price over the years. Um, you know, and the, look at the last 10 years in commodity prices just across the board, corn, soy, you know, pork bellies, you know, you name it, lumber. Um, if you look at all these commodities or metals, energy prices, if you look at them all, they're, they're not uniform. They, but in general, prices have been going down over time. That is not the sign of inflation. That's a sign of deflation. Historically speaking, inflationary times, you should see a rise in commodity prices. And we haven't seen that. 
So deflationary times tend to be a little less uniform and there, there tends to be more sporadic. So commodity prices have gone down, but you say, yeah, but I've been to the store and all the stuff I'm buying costs more. It may cost more. And that is another good or service, right? So the, the, the calculation of inflation or deflation is split up between all these goods and services as an aggregate in our society and they come up with a number. Some people think that it's not an honest number or a good number. Um, you know, we're, we're probably going to interview uh, John Williams and Shadow Stats. He has a, a really good method of calculating inflation, and he thinks that they're also not being honestly distributed. But let's hold that aside for a minute. Let's just assume that they're accurate. Um, I look at it, and I, we've, been, we've been monitoring this for years, and I'm seeing deflation. I'm not seeing inflation. I am seeing inflation in certain areas, but it's not uniform. So if you think about it, let's look at stock prices. You say, well, yeah, but the stock market's going up. That is one of the areas that we're seeing inflation. We're seeing asset price inflation. Asset price inflation in real estate, in stock prices, that is happening. That, that makes us feel like inflation. And the Fed wants us to feel like there's inflation because it is a positive reinforcement loop. If you think there's inflation, you will cause more inflation. There's actually a theory of reflexivity uh, by Karl Popper, um, who theorizes this. George Soros um, is, is a guy who actually um, talks about this a lot. Uh, whether you like or hate George Soros, he is an intellectual and he, he does have some interesting thoughts. So reflexivity is basically um, the idea that if you have inflation, people think you have inflation, thus creates more inflation. And the Fed is really good at this. It's more of like a psychological tool that they use to uh, manipulate inflation. Deflation works the same way. If you think there's deflation, you're going to continue to act as if there's deflation. You're not going to spend your money. You're going to save it. You're going to keep in cash. You're not going to invest it. That will cause more deflation. So there's a negative reinforcement loop that goes on there. Now, so if you look at what's happened, you have some goods and services going up. You have some goods and services staying flat or going down, like TVs, for instance. I just went and bought one and realized that you could pretty much get a wallpaper-sized TV, like an inch thick, um, you know, 60-some-odd inches for less than $1,000. And they're coming out with wallpaper TV that you can literally, like, roll up. In a, I mean, it's just crazy stuff. There was a time where we'd be paying a few thousand dollars for a big-screen TV that weighed as much as a tank. I mean, you know, you're, and yet, even though the technology is advanced, the prices haven't changed. So technology frequently has this deflationary effect. And so if you're looking at inflation or deflation, it's not uniform. So that's really kind of my message. And the last piece, which is really the most important part, the goods and services is what's measured. But if you can't afford them, then what does inflation really mean? Now, what I mean by that is wages. So wages for the last 20 years have, you know, they've gone up and down over that period, but they've more or less stagnated. So if you look at 20 years ago, we're pretty much where we were. We're a little bit ahead of where we were 20 years ago. But think about that. We've not had wage inflation, and this is real wage inflation. We've not had that for the last 20 years. If you look at stock prices, they're up significantly. Why have we not had wage inflation, but yet all these asset prices and goods and services are going up? My point is, this is not uniform and you need to be aware of that because at some point, if wages don't continue to go up, 
you know, people only have a certain amount of money. And at that point, they spend less and it kind of changes the cycle. So I'm going to stop, you know, ranting here and give it, Tim a chance to ask some additional questions. <laughs> well, you did, you did great, make, make my job uh, really, really easy over here. And obviously I'm not a fan of the Federal Reserve and anyone that's been following me in any context, you know, for any time would know that along with, uh, you know, our friend George Soros <laughs> that you've mentioned as well. But I think one thing that's important for people to understand, I'll make a statement and kind of get to a question is that how the system was designed it really can't have deflation. Now, you know, we had some, you know, deflationary periods, you know, after the Civil War when there was no central banking, but then as, you know, now we're in this period where we've had central banking since uh, December 23rd, 1913. And now we're at, we're at the, this point where we have a central bank and because the money is backed by debt and because of now we have all these derivatives and other assets that are tied to the derivatives that if you start seeing deflation, essentially what will happen is the entire system can collapse underneath its own weight because there's more debt in the system than there is money. And so you have so basically in a federal reserve system that is not federal and not preserving anything. That's another, another whole nother uh, can of worms. If you have deflation, the whole system collapses underneath its own weight. And, and I think eventually in the long run, you know, we can have some massive inflation and it can be in different, uh, you know, different areas, particularly, you know, we've seen, you, you mentioned, you know, asset price inflation is, is where we've, you know, particularly seen it. You'd also brought up John Williams' shadow stats. And I think it's important to note that a lot of these inflation numbers are definitely rigged and, you know, in, in terms of ways that, you know, and that's probably kind of like outside the scope of really what we want to talk about, you know, but let's say you used to go to the store and buy cereal that was, I don't know, like 16 ounces and now it might be 15. And so they can keep the price the same, but there's ways to do that or they do things where they substitute where you used to buy, you know, steak and now you buy hot dogs. And so they'll put the price of the hot dog in versus the price of the steak or you, you know, and I don't know what the price of these things are, but let's say you had an iPhone seven and it was $500. And now you have an, you know, whatever the new iPhone is called. I don't know the iPhone, but it's like the XLR. Or X, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, I think we're beyond eight now. I think it's like yeah, we're iPhone Pro. Yeah. Uh, and so now let's say the new iPhone is 1200 bucks, but it, so it costs, you know, double. However, because it has more features into it, now they're the, by how they calculate these things, they'll actually say there's not inflation because there's, let's say it's five times more powerful or more memory, more RAM, everything else, yada, yada, yada. So now it's actually, you know, they're by how, how it's measured, it's actually, uh, you know, going down. And then it also used to be where the definition of inflation used to actually be money printing. And, and then somewhere along the lines, that uh, definition did get uh, did get changed. I did want to you know ask you different ways they measure inflation, but you already you had mentioned chocolate and uh, you know Let's, real estate, how that was a good way to keep up with things. Uh, and really, you know, what about like and for people that are worried about inflation, you know, what would you say some you know good you know hedges out there might might be? Well, besides you know I'm in Phoenix, so I just can't buy you know a huge amount of chocolate. It would cost you know <laughs> a ton to uh, you know try to keep that baby air conditioned. But nice, you know, what, nice. what, you know, what's a good you know hedge? You know, I hear a lot of people talk about gold. You know, some people might even talk about Bitcoin. But you know, what are some of the, the you know the hedges that you see out there that could help protect people against inflation? Let me let me actually make a point you, you were talking about. I wanted to raise this point because I think it's really important. A lot of people think that money printing equals inflation. This is a common misperception. Now, um, everybody talks about this, even the experts, even the people in the, like the, you know, some of the typical hedges like the gold space. Everybody says, I mean, if you look back in 2008 where they printed, it was really the first time where they just kind of blew the numbers out and really um, printed a ton of money to save the financial system. 
And people thought, and they've been thinking this for the last 12 years, oh my God, there's going to be a huge amount of inflation. We're going to have hyperinflation, invest in gold. It's just going to be crazy. Everything's going to go through the roof and the system's going to collapse. All right. 12 years later, when has any of that happened? Is the dollar still a thing? Yep. People are still using the dollar. Is gold through the roof? Eh, it's higher, but it's not through the roof. You know, has society collapsed? No. So- it makes for great- well, depending, depending on which uh, US city I guess you're in right now. Would, that's uh, true. Maybe yeah, dictate is, that. So. That's true. We'll, we'll, we'll take those aside. But, you know, if you really look at, um, you know, if you really look at how things work, um, what I think most people miss is they think money printing equals inflation. And theoretically, that is true. However, in practice, it's not necessarily true. So think about it this way. <clears throat> Let's take an example. Let's say you have a uh, million dollars in currency in our society. Let's just say a million dollars. That's how much is out there. Um, all right. So you've got a million dollars. That's the money supply. That's the amount of money in circulation. Let's say you go up and, all right, I'm, I'm just going to print up a trillion dollars, right? You're just going to blow the numbers out and just go from a million to a trillion. That's, that's huge inflation. That's like thousands of percent uh, inflation or thousand X. Okay. You would imagine that prices would go up a thousand times or whatever that is. You, you, I'm sorry, it'd be more like, uh, well, let's use, this goes from a million to a billion. So it's going up like a thousand times, right? That's not going to affect prices necessarily in the way that you think. Now, if you just dump all that money on the streets and people buy it and they start spending it and it is actually currency in society and it's floating around, then yes, you will now, find- let's not, a, let's not give the Fed any ideas, Kirk. You know, you're standing oh, they already have the something. ideas, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I, could just, I could just wave back here and, and just, just, just listen to what I'm saying. Or just please don't actually. But no, they, they are, I mean, Bernanke talked about helicopter money a while back and- um, so they're not unaware those of those are rookie. Principle. Those are rookie moves now. Now they're talking about having bringing in the stealth B two bombers now. So you know we we've, we've graduated from you know helicopters. That was you know that's not enough. Now we got to bring in the B two bombers. I'm sure. Where's your Where's those. your money gun, Tim? Did, you don't have that for this show. You don't have your money bazooka. <laughs> I, and actually, <laughs> I actually use it so much that I ran out of batteries, and so I actually. It, but actually, I did. My daughters wanted to use them, and so I ended up buying a second money gun. But I do somewhere have a Trump money gun over there, but it ran out of batteries because we've had. So much money printing that uh, you know I couldn't keep up with it. So let's get back to the point because I think this is an important point. If, if you hear nothing else from this conversation, this is the point you really need to understand. Money printing does not equal inflation. So in that scenario I gave you, they print up a, a, you know a, another billion dollars, and they stick that billion dollars in a bank vault, and it just sits there. No one sees it. No one touches it. Technically, you've got you know, a billion dollars plus a million as your currency. That, that is what's in circulation. But the billion is not actually circulating. So you're not getting inflation. I mean, think about it logically, right? Like that money is not circulating. You could have a hundred quadrillion dollars in a bank vault. If nobody sees it, it's not inflation because it's not actually in the system. So what I think you need to recognize is that just because they say they're printing money doesn't mean they're actually printing money. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, people take money and then they just squirrel it away or they have assets that are not being used. Or as an example, uh, the perfect example is the Fed buys assets. 
So the Fed buys assets, it's pretty much, I mean, we're not going to um, mince words here, Tim, because I know you would, you would disagree with some of this, but I'm just talking like high level. It, the Fed is, let's say, an arm of the government, right? The government, you know, they're printing money in one hand and then they're putting it in their other pocket and it doesn't go anywhere. It's just, it's in one pocket or it's in the other pocket. It doesn't really matter. So my point is it's not causing inflation and people get this wrong. They think the dollar is going to go to zero. It's going to collapse because there's so much money. It's not all circulating and a great example. And hopefully Tim can kind of punch in some of these charts, but there's, if you look at the velocity of money, and for those of you who are not familiar with the velocity of money, it's basically the amount of money that the number of times money circulates into society. Um, so if you, you know, if, if I have, there's a $10 bill and I give it to Tim for, you know, I don't know, for whatever, for his mic. And then he takes that $10 and he spends it on an ice cream cone and the ice cream cone guy spends it on a waffle maker. Like there's circulation. There's a bunch of, there's like four or five people in that circulation. That means that money's circulating. If you look at the velocity of money, even though the Fed printed a huge amount of money, it's just dropped like a stone. The velocity of money has tanked and it's been going down for the last, you know, 20 years. It's just, it has not been making progress. So the time I would worry about inflation is actually if um, the velocity of money, there we go. Yeah. Since pretty much 98 or somewhere thereabouts, it's pretty much gone down. So if you look at the velocity of money, that is an indication that the money printing is not actually having any effect. Because the, the, really that the velocity of money and you, um, I don't want to get into the technical terms, but basically velocity of money is an indicator. So if you're printing this money and effectively sticking it in a bank vault, which is what is shown there on the velocity of money chart, then you're not getting the inflation that you think. So even though, even though they're printing money, it's not actually happening. Now, I would surmise that the Fed is doing this in a way to psychologically tell people we're having inflation. And if they wanted to actually get inflation, all they have to do is lend money to people, which actually has been floated as a trial balloon recently. And right now, money is actually created through banks. And if you I think don't it'd be know better that, if they just, if they just uh, got rid of all taxation and then just let the money and then let us keep all of our money and then we'd spend more of it. I think that'd be a better way to do it. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly an idea that, that people have floated. And I think that... Um, I mean, right now, if you're not aware, money is not actually created by the Fed, it's created by banks. Banks loan money to individuals, people take those money, they put it back in the bank and they use it. And money is, uh, and this gets into the technical, so I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but basically the banks are what creates money, not the Fed. And the banks are not lending. And if they're not lending, they're not creating more money in society, hence there's no inflation. So there's a lot of reasons that there isn't inflation. But the people who who kind of like, you know, get a bug in your ear because they think, oh, printing money equals inflation. Deflation is actually a bigger problem. And I say this because deflation is what they're trying to keep away from. And deflation is what I've been seeing for the last, you know, 10, 12 years is, is heavy deflation. Now think of it this way. If the market sells off 35% and you know that we're basically gonna become Japan, which we can talk about later, um, you're going to print a huge amount of money to get us out of that hole, right? And that's basically what the Fed has done is they've, they've quote unquote printed money to get us out of this hole with the market. And it's done that, but all they did was fill a hole. They didn't make progress. They just filled in the hole that was, uh, that was emptied out from the COVID crisis and the fact that it, people couldn't work for a few months. <clears throat> so that's really what they did. They didn't cause inflation. They just filled a gap. And 
So if you look at this moving forward, all they're really doing is keeping us afloat. They're not really causing inflation. What I would worry about, and if you look at historically, deflation is a precursor to hyperinflation. So if you think we have inflation, you think we're going to get hyperinflation, that's not how it works. What happens is we have inflation, then we have deflation for long periods of time, like Japan, they're a good example, and then you'd have hyperinflation. And hyperinflation happens quickly. Um, it's not overnight, but it happens relatively quickly. Um, and that's when you get worried. But we have a long way to go before we get there because we are the world's reserve currency. So I am not at all worried about inflation right now, not in the least. I'm more worried about deflation, but given the Fed's stance on deflation, at the moment, I'm not worried about it. I do think that at some point, they're gonna run out of ammunition and that's gonna cause a problem. And um, Tim and I were talking about this before, there might be a, a quote unquote debt jubilee as people have been talking about. Um, yeah, I wrote about this in a paper in 2008, as a, I actually wrote a letter to the Fed uh, about what they could do to, to get rid of all the bad debt. And I was talking about basically a debt jubilee. Now that has actually been floated in the last five or so years as an option, which I think will have to be an outcome at some point. But for now, what I think people should worry about and getting back to Tim's actual question is, you know, what can you do? You know, what can you do now that inflation is a problem um, or deflation is a problem? Like, how do you invest for times like this? Because I think everyone's a little concerned that the market is, you know, it's kind of on its ear at this point. Um, you have the election coming up. You've got, you know, basically, you know, high unemployment, a lot of business, you know, industries are, are not doing very well, but then you've got some industries doing very well. What I would say is here's how you invest for different time periods. What works well in inflationary periods typically are commodities, stocks, real estate, and um, any, any pretty much, you know, cash flowing asset. Gold does, does reasonably well in inflation. Um, but what doesn't do well in inflation are cash, uh, bonds, not all bonds, but bonds in general lose value over time because they're fixed. They're not growing with inflation where they should be growing. So over time they lose value. Um, the interest rate is what offsets that. So, you know, bonds aren't necessarily a bad thing. They're just, yeah, you have to watch out for that in inflationary periods. Now, if you flip that on, flip the script to deflation, what works well in deflationary periods? Uh, not much. Cash. Cash does really well in deflationary periods. Uh, any asset that has a very strong, solid cash flow. Um, bonds. And I, not every bond, but like a U.S. Treasury bond. Something that's really, really solid that you can count on. It's not going to go out of business. Things like that will do really well in deflation. Because if you think about it, if you have a... a 20-year, 3% CD, and now CDs are less than 1%. 3%'s looking pretty good. No matter how, even if we get to negative interest rates and we have deflation, things are bad, you're still getting 3%. That's pretty good, right? Now, you have to think about, so in deflationary times, uh, those things do well. Gold actually is one of those assets that is, um, it actually can do well in deflation and inflation, there's actually more to it. I know people think that naturally inflation is good for gold and deflation is not good. It's actually not that simple. Um, 
gold tends to trend well based on other factors, but um, in the simplistic term, gold is more of a chaos hedge and it depends on how people are looking at it. So we can get into that later, but the, uh, the point is, is what doesn't do well in deflation are leveraged assets. So real estate. So if you own a real piece of real estate and you have uh, 80, 20 mortgage, that's, that's a problem because over time, and this is the inf this is the inverse of inflation. Inflation means your cash is going to deteriorate over time. Deflation means your cash is actually going to go up in price over time. Your cash is more valuable, um, and it's more valuable because everything else is losing value. So, what if you think about taking out a mortgage as an example, right? Let's say you buy real estate. You buy a real piece of real estate for hundred thousand. And next, you have, de you have 5% deflation, as an example. Next year, it's worth 95,000. You're thinking, well, what the heck? Why is my real estate going down? Well, you had a $100,000 property. Your mortgage was 80,000 on an 80-20, right? So you have $80,000 mortgage. Let's say for this example, it's still worth 80,000, right? After a year, your property's not worth 100, it's worth 95. So your mortgage has not gone down in value, but your real estate has. Let's take a few more years. Let's say it's down 20%. Now you're, not, you're close to underwater, right? All your equity disappeared because the price of real estate's gone down, but your mortgage has not gone down in price. It is a fixed asset. So the, the principal value has not changed. And I'm obviously in this example, not counting the fact that you can pay it down. Um, assuming that you're not paying it down. Your mortgage has not changed in principal value. So think about that for a minute. In inflation, it's the reverse. It's great to have leverage in inflation because your mortgage will depreciate in price over time. Not only are you paying it back, but the value of it goes down over time. So you're actually, it's one of the reasons why so many people are interested in real estate is because you're getting a high amount of leverage on both the property as well as on inflation. So. That's why real estate's great in inflationary times. And you get to claim depreciation even while your assets depreciating. Like, you know, that's Correct. how, you know, the quick version of how Donald Trump ends up with a $750 tax bill. But, you know, that's a whole other can of worms we're not going to get into right now. So, yeah, no, it's, it's an important point. And, and so real estate's a great asset during inflationary times. In deflationary times, it's a terrible asset to own. It's actually, I, let me rephrase that. It's not a terrible asset to own. The reasons that you own it in inflation are reversed. So if you look at Japan, Japan's a great case study because it's going on right now. For the last 30 years, Japan has been in deflation. Now, if you look at the statistics for Japan for the last 30 years, everything's kind of more or less gone down. You know, wages have gone down, uh, prices have gone down. Uh, if you look at real estate, real estate prices have gone down. What's most interesting is real estate prices have consistently gone down over that period, you know, in a, in a similar way that they would go up in inflationary periods. But if you think about you know, real estate and as an investment, you get tenants, they're paying rent, right? They're paying you rent every month. Well, in deflation, they can afford less over time, right? So your $1,000 a month in rent maybe goes, out, goes down to 950 a month and goes down to 900. So that is going down too, because that's all people can afford. That's what the market rate gonna, is gonna be over that time. So that's gonna go down. So your rent's gonna go down, but your, and your real estate value is going to go down, but your price that you have on your mortgage is not going to change. So it basically reverts the benefits of real estate. Now, real estate's not a bad thing. If you don't have a mortgage, it's fine. 
it's still producing cash flow. You're still getting a lot of the tax benefits. There's a lot of good reasons to own real estate. The point I'm making is that you have to understand the dynamics of what works well in inflation versus deflation. So cash works well in deflation. Um, leveraged assets do not work well because of that, because of the, the principle I was talking about. Um, and anything that's, that's higher risk tends to do uh, less well. Uh, as I said, gold can do well, depending on what's going on. Um, safe, safe bonds. Other things that don't do well are, they tend to be equities, although it depends on the equity, but they're not, we don't get these bull markets like we're getting here. Um, so what's really important to understand is deflation, there's a lot of things that really aren't great for deflation. Um, it might be good for the net consumer, assuming that your wages are still flat, like they have been for the last you know, 20 years. But um, you're, you're looking at Japan. If you really want to look at an example of, of deflation, just study Japan. We actually have a bunch of good articles on our website that talk about um, Japan and deflation and you know, what's going on there. And I think if you just look at that, you get a really good read for, um, for how deflation works. They're really one of the best examples right now. Europe is actually in uh, stagnation. Um, you know, people can argue whether things are going well or not. I would argue Europe is in a stagnation kind of, I, I don't even know if you call it deflation, but they're, they're more of a, a stagnation um, uh, thing going on. The U.S. is hard to tell what, was, what it's going to look like. Are we going to look like Europe or are we, we going to look like Japan? Um, I don't really know yet because we tend to be a little bit more um, volatile with our markets. Uh, I think Europe is, you know, they tend to be a little bit more flat. There's, there's not as much innovation and growth as there is in the US. So you, you tend to get maybe less volatile spikes, but it just means at best case, it means you're not making any progress. Uh, as, as a few economists have said, it's kind of like a muddle through economy where you're just kind of getting through it. That's kind of a best case scenario in a deflation. Um, the problem is, is uh, a lot of things in the system don't really uh, get out of the system because one of the problems with deflation is you're not allowing the system to self-correct. So if you think of all these banks that probably should have gone bankrupt in 2008, you know, you think of all these companies right now that are going bankrupt because of COVID. Um, not saying they should go bankrupt, but there are a lot of companies that are actually probably should have gone bankrupt before COVID anyway. And, you know, public companies and, and private aside, they were highly leveraged, they're barely making it. And COVID just kind of kicked them into the, into the dust, dustbin. And now the guys, and then the guys behind you, the Federal Reserve, uh, then came and bought up, you know, their debts. Now about a third of all mortgages are owned by the Fed. The Fed even was buying, uh, you know, investment grade bonds, uh, ten to one lever or junk bonds at a rate of seven to one leverage. And, and this was something that I pointed out in my Anarcha Poco speech. Is listen, they usually have about thirty percent of bonds are going to go from triple B, the lowest grade of investment grade, to then, uh, you know, junk status. And when that happens, all the ETFs are going to be forced to sell. And actually, I predicted on that the Fed was going to have to come in and then have to buy up those bonds, which was, you know, blasphemous, never had before. And that's exactly what they had to come in and do, even to a point that surpassed my wildest expectations. And so you're creating these zombie companies. And, and I know I'm probably going to get murdered in the comments here because obviously a lot of people that follow me are, you know, high, you know, heavy into gold, heavy into Bitcoin, you know, 
uh, obviously, you know, are, uh, you know, think, and, and I just want to point out that you're not anti-gold. I mean, as a matter, matter of fact, I think going back to 2008, you were trying to see if you could get paid in gold. Uh, so something that you, you know, wanted to, you know, offer as an option. And, you know, there is gold in our portfolio and you're not anti-gold. You're just trying to, you know, be agnostic as and, and tell people like it is. And it, it almost seems like from an investment perspective and, and obviously, you know, past performance, no indication of future returns, but you know, what, how we were invested. And for those of you who don't know, Kirk is the managing principal of Innovative Advisor Group, which is where, you know, I hang my hat out and shingle from, but uh, you know, it, it, from the main core strategy that we were employing for two years, it almost seems like it really didn't matter if we had inflation or deflation, because we were sort of, uh, you know, protected for either one. But I do want to make the point that you're not anti-gold. You're not uh, one of these, you know, people that, you know, is always poo-pooing it. Uh, but I guess you're, but you're also not to, not, not to knock this person, but you're also not Peter Schiff either. That's always touting how it's always a great time. And I, I do think people should at a bare minimum have it as, you know, that chaos hedge that you were talking about, because, you know, I, I couldn't imagine a, a time where there's more potential for chaos, uh, at least in the United States than, uh, you know, what we have now, but I don't know if that was more of a statement or a question. No, it's, it's, look, you, you make a good point. I'm, I'm glad you bring it up. Cause I don't, um, I'm, I'm asset class agnostic. I don't, there are people, uh, and I'm not going to name names, but there, there are people out there um, who are always, we call them gold bugs. They're always bullish in gold. You know, it's always a good time to buy gold. Oh, great. It's going down. Great. It's, you're getting at a discount. Let's buy more of it. Um, and I look at that and just say, that's just ridiculous. Like there, there is a time to own it and there's a time not to own it. And there are people on the other side of the coin say, oh, you're all tinfoil hat kooks. If you're owning gold, gold's ridiculous. You got Warren Buffett saying that it's, it's a, you know, it's a worthless asset. It doesn't produce any cash flow. I but think recently though, he did come out and well, not as for him, probably one of his underlings came out and bought, I forget, was it Barrick Gold? I think, uh, I can't remember uh, the exact gold company, but one of <laughs> You know, Berkshire now did invest, you know, for them, you know, by a relatively small amount, I think it was like half a billion or something into gold, which was a, you know, departure from what, you know, they had done, you know, the past you know, 70 years or however long they've been around. Yeah, look, it's where I'm going with this is there's, um, there are people out there who have a, a fixed mindset about gold. It's either very positive, or very negative. Um, and it's, you know, from my standpoint, I look at stuff like that and I just say, that's ridiculous. You have to, you have to look at the facts and you have to make up your mind based on the facts. There were times in, if you go way back to, um, you know, basically the early 2000s, 2000 to 2000 and I think it was 11 was, uh, 11 was the peak. And that was right before it started. Was it? No, no, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong chart here. Um, so yeah, if you go all the way back to like, you know, the early 2000s and then the peak was around mid, uh, mid 2011. And then after that, it kind of came down. Then it really came down um, in 2013. I mean, in 2000, I'm not looking at it, but it was like around like 300. And I think that's when Canada, you know, infamously sold all their gold, you know, right? Like pretty much, I mean, I don't know if it's exactly 2000, but somewhere between like there and 2003. Uh, I'm just doing this off memory right now. Um, but yeah. Where, where I'm going with this though is, so you have these periods where gold is in favor and then you have periods where they're not in favor. And it doesn't mean it's a bad asset, it just means that it's a bad price. And you know, there are lots of reasons to own gold. You can own, I mean, I know a lot of people, they own gold no matter what it's doing and it's their chaos hedge. It's their hedge against inflation. They own it for specific reasons. A lot of really people own gold and they never sell it. They just sit on it. And that's okay. There's reasons for that. 
and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're, if you're investing for, you know, a trend or if you're investing to make money, then you have to understand that there are peaks and there are valleys and there are times to invest and there are times not to invest. So, you know, we invested during the good periods in the early 2000s and we get out for a while <clears throat> and then it was really cheap and we bought back in because it was actually under the price of what it takes to produce an ounce of gold. Well, that to me is kind of a nice floor. No matter what happens, it's going to be hard to go under that because you can't produce. What do they call I that? Think it was like, like back, backwardation or something. I forgot what they, what they call that. Or no, that's the futures prices. Okay. No, no, that, that's, that's future prices. What I'm talking about is I think at the time it was about $1,250 an ounce is what it took to mine an ounce of gold. And it was trading for about, you know, 1050 an ounce. What that means is that no one's going to be producing gold because it costs too much and you're going to get less than what you mine it for. So all the mines shut down. Well, if all the mines shut down, there's no more gold, which means the prices go back up. It's just supply and demand. That's how commodity prices work. And subsequently, that's what's happened. It's gone back up and down and it's come back to a normal range. So my point is, is there, that was a great time to invest in gold and mining stocks if you could find good ones because they were trading at a huge discount. Now, gold's in favor and everybody wants to buy it. Um, you know, they should have been buying it a few years ago when it was cheap. And it's not, I'm not saying it's over, you know, because I think it's still in a bull market. I think gold still is in a bull market and will be for a little while. Um, Especially the fact that, I mean, now we're pretty much, you know, hanging out, you know, give or take, you know, at the previous high and we've been doing so for, you know, a while now. So I, I think that that probably is a bullish signal that the resistance is now the, you know, give or take, you know, the previous high. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's, um, you know, no one knows the future and I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, gold is going to keep going up or it's going to keep going down because no one really knows, but all the evidence points to the fact that gold is still in a bull market. And, um, you know, I don't, based on what I'm seeing, I don't see that ending right now. I still see a lot of institutional money, a lot of investors putting money into gold, which means supply and demand, People want it, price goes up. So I think that's kind of inevitably that that's going to continue at least in the time frame. So I just I just want to point out that you have to be asset class agnostic. You might love your asset. You might be a real estate investor through and through, and it might be your you know it's what you have a passion for, and that's great. But if we have a deflationary environment like Japan, you just need to understand the environment that you're in. It's not that real estate's bad. It's not like people don't own real estate in Japan. They do. You just need to understand how to own it. And if you're trying to leverage yourself up to the hilt, then you're just going to get, you're just going to get burned. It's like these oil and gas wildcatters that take all this risk and then a bear market hits and they get blown out and go bankrupt um, because they're not managing the risk. And what's really important, and this is what we do a lot of is risk management, is how do you manage your risk around an asset so that you can still make money during the good times and during the bad times, you're not losing. But I think another important point is that, you know, if people think all this money printing creates inflation and that gold would be a good hedge in that, and that then can create a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially given the fact that the gold market relative to, you know, other financial assets is, you know, pretty much like a drop in the bucket. We just saw the other day, we just topped $27 trillion in debt for the first time. But, you know, to your point, a lot of this money is not really going out and being freely spent and going and circling through the economy. It's basically being, you know, there to keep some of these zombie banks alive. And so, you know, at this point, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to end up being a money tree episode, but we probably want to, uh, you know, kind of wrap things up. And, and so I, I know that people can find you at innovativewealth.com. They can find myself there uh, also, but is there any, uh, you know, 
any other plugs you'd like to give or, or you know, anything else you'd like to touch on in inflation, uh, deflation as we start to wrap this up? Yeah, look, if, if you're if you're interested in hearing about more about inflation, deflation, you can certainly go to our company website, innovativewealth.com. Uh, you can certainly find me on Money Tree Investing Podcast. Um, I do that show every week. We have a lot of great guests. Uh, Tim's on occasionally as well. We bring him on to talk about some of the things he's passionate about. And, you know, it's a, it's a great show. It's one of the longest running podcasts out there. Um, and we have a lot of great guests. We brought on some pretty interesting ones. Um, in the past few years. So if you go back in the history, you'll be able to see them. So I would just say, you know, that's really been our, that's really been our medium during this crisis is just having these episodes every week and just bringing on good guests that can talk about, uh, I'll give you a good example. We had a great interview with Rob Arnott, who, if you're not an institutional investor, you probably don't know who the heck that is. Uh, Rob is one of the most well-known institutional researchers, uh, research affiliates. And he did a great paper on the pension crisis and what that means. So I saw that paper and I was like, this is exactly what I want to talk about is people don't know what the pension crisis is. So he went over all the details, all the data, you know, statistics. We got a YouTube video up there. Like it was just, it was just great stuff. So um, my point is, is it's a great show. Um, come check it out. Um, you know, they can, I know find, they can find that on iTunes and probably all the other, you know, usual suspects or places where you can find podcasts under Money Tree Podcast. Is it MoneyTreePodcast.com? Is that your Yes, MoneyTreePodcast.com. You can, you know, you can find it. We're the only Money Tree investing podcast out there. So uh, find it, you know, there's a thing Google, you should be able to see. But yeah, MoneyTreePodcast.com is the website. Okay. And for those of you who are, you know, seeing me for the first time, or maybe you're listening to this on World Alternative Media, I'd, I'd also, you know, uh, invite you guys to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Tim Pichot, The Liberty Advisor. You can find out more about uh, basically all the platforms you can find me at. This will be launching soon, the libertyadvisorshow.com, where, you know, I encourage people to go on other platforms, just aside from, from YouTube. I'm uh, going over to library, lbry.tv forward slash at the Liberty Advisor, and also on float.avp forward slash the Liberty Advisor. And, uh, uh, you know, everything we do is also available on podcast format and all the usual suspects. Just type in my name, Tim Pichot, the Liberty Advisor. Probably Liberty Advisor would be enough to get you there. And then uh, if you are interested in working with myself or Kirk, you can find out more at innovativewealth.com. And then if you want to specifically for, you know, what I'm doing in the crypto space, you can find out more at thelibertyadvisor.com for the business side of things. But anyways, thank you, Kirk, for breaking down the inflation, deflation. I know it's not necessarily what people uh, you know, wanted to hear and not necessarily creating, you know, this, you know, feedback of, you know, all this, you know, positive things of, of giving people what they want to hear, but I think is what people need to hear. And, you know, on a long enough time horizon, uh, you know, who knows, you know, I think eventually, you know, things will end up collapsing on a long enough time horizon, but in a short enough time horizon, you know, people do, you know, go to the dollar in terms of crisis. They do do things that, you know, are a little bit counterintuitive. And, you know, that's a message I've talked about for a while. Uh, but anyways, you know, I definitely appreciate having you on the show today. It was, you know, wealth of, of information and look forward to having you back in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Tim. This is a lot of fun. Yep. Thanks, Kurt.